0: Last Sunday we spoke to you from the 11th chapter in the book of Hebrews. The chapter, uh, Bible readers know, emphasizes the importance of faith and how that the writer, which I believe to be Paul, the human writer, wrote this book to give encouragement to the Hebrew Christians of that day. Uh, All the characters, all the persons that are in that book are from the Old Testament. And we took a look at those uh, such as, Abel and uh, Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and then Moses. And Hebrews 11, 2 said, By faith the elders received a good report. Here are examples of those in the Old Testament that received that good report. I wouldn't say they were the only ones who received that type of good report, but they're the ones who God chose to put on record for us to read about and to study. And so we ended up there talking about Moses. And we would come down to verse 28, by faith how he put the blood on the sidepost and the lentils so that when the Lord passed over, uh, they would not be among those where the blood was not. But then verses 29, 30, and 31, he says, by faith they passed through the Red Sea. The word pass simply means cross. By faith they passed through the Red Sea on dry ground, and the Egyptians are saying to do likewise, perished. Then the next verse says, By faith the walls of Jericho fell flat after being compassed seven days. And that's an important expression there. And then the next verse says, By faith the harlot Rahab perished not with them which believed not. And she received the spies with peace, and the expression with peace is an important expression. If you notice carefully, there's something that's not recorded between verses 29 and 30. That's a period of Israel's history. Now, right now, Paul is given some history of Israel, the history of Moses being their leader to bring them out of the land of Egypt, how they crossed the Red Sea. You go back to Exodus chapter 14, and you read about that experience. But after that, there's about 40 plus years, 40 years plus a few weeks, you might say, of Israel's history is not in here. It's not in here for a reason, because that part of their history is anything but events of faith. This has to do with Israel wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. So he skips over that, and you should understand why. Again, they were walking by sight and not by faith, and they disobeyed, and... They walk 40 years in the wilderness as a result of God's judgment upon them. Then he skips right into the walls of Jericho falling down flat. So it's important to notice sometimes what's not written. So I thought I might begin with, I was going to just say to you, I'd like to speak to you on a book, chapter, and verse it's not there. I figure that might get your attention. But anyway, here is a portion of Scripture that's not there. It's not there for a reason, not there for a purpose. Let's take a look at that just for a moment because it's extremely important. Paul will use that event in Hebrews 3 and 4 to teach New Testament saints a lesson. Go back to the book of Numbers, chapter 13, and you'll find where Israel had got to a place where they had opportunity to cross Jordan's River to go into the land of Canaan. The land of Canaan was a special land that God had set aside, you might say, for His people Israel to occupy. Now, it was already occupied by other nations, heathen nations. But the Lord had promised that He would go before them and fight their battles for them, and He would put the dread and fear of them into their hearts. It was a land that flowed with milk and honey. It was a land of hills and valleys. It was a land that was designated as the promised land, but also a land of rest. Remember that now, land of rest they would have their own place of identification. When those other nations were moved out, they would occupy that land. So we come to the 13th chapter of Numbers, and we find where the people make a request. Now if you'll read Deuteronomy chapter 1 along with this, you'll find where Moses tells them to go up at once and possess the land that the Lord thy God hath given thee. Possess it. But they replied unto him and said, Well, let us send men into the country to search out the country so we might see what cities that we might enter into and by which way we might enter into the land. And that pleased Moses. He said, okay, I'll do that. Now we're going to find out later on they had an ulterior motive about this thing. So Moses is going to select one spy from each of the 12 tribes. So 12 spies, all 12 tribes are represented. And of those 12 uh, spies, there's one named Caleb, there's one named Joshua. Joshua. And those 12 spies go and search out the land of Canaan, and they're gone for 40 days. And they come back. Now Moses told them, he says, go and search out the land, see whether the people be many, whether they be few, whether they be weak, whether they be strong, what kind of land it is, etc., etc. Bring back a full evaluation of the land. So they come back, and the very first thing, all 12 said, yes, it is a fruitful land, it is a land that flows with milk and honey, and they brought back the evidence of it. They brought back a cluster of grapes that required two men to hang it on a staff and tote it out of there. That's been quite a sight, wouldn't it have been? I never seen anything quite like that uh, myself. Anywhere anything close to that. That showed how fruitful that land was. But then they quickly changed their tune. They said, Nevertheless, that's an important word in the Bible. It reverses things. Nevertheless, says the people are great in the land, and their cities are walled. And we saw the sons of Anak there, which were sons of the giants. And about the time they got through saying this, we find where Caleb speaks up. He said, let us go up at once to possess the land. He said, for we be well able to take it. And then they spoke up, the other ten, this is not Joshua and Caleb now, and the other ten says, we be not well able to take it. And again, they emphasized what I just said, except they even exaggerated it even more. And so they murmured against God, this displeased God. And they even spoke, spoke about stoning Joshua and Caleb. And we find where Joshua and Caleb both spoke up and said, If the Lord delight in us, he will bring us into this land that we might possess it. Why wouldn't he not? Is this not the land he had in consideration from the very beginning? Is this not the promised land called the promised land because God promised to give Israel this land, a land of rest, a land of their own? He brought them out of bondage and captivity out of the land of Egypt, made this promise. But these ten spies brought what God would call an evil report. It was evil in the fact it caused the hearts of the nation of Israel to melt. And therefore they rebelled against God and was not willing to go in to that good land that he gave them. God had told them this land will have houses in it that you didn't build. It'll have vineyards you didn't plant. It'll have, um, the land will bring forth the fruit of it that you didn't labor for. Uh, you couldn't get any better than that, could you? And yet they rebelled against God, and God called it an evil report. Now, if you come up here to the book of Hebrews chapter 3, you find why Paul brings this event that I've been talking about so far to their attention. He says, Harden not your hearts as in the day of provocation when Israel provoked me and tempted me. He said, They hardened their hearts. Do not do that. Do not harden your hearts. If it was not possible for me to harden my heart, that verse wouldn't be in the Bible. Harden not your hearts and provoke me not as they did who provoked me and tempted me. And they brought back an evil heart. He says, for they always err in their heart. Notice where the error is, first of all. It was in the heart. For they always err in their heart. Now, who was the Lord displeased with? But those whose carcasses. Now, I think that's kind of interesting. That's how the Lord refers to those who perished in the wilderness. Their carcasses fail in the wilderness as a result of unbelief. Then chapter 4 starts off. and says, therefore, let us fear. Therefore, let us fear. As I said before, if you like lettuce, you'll love Hebrews, because lettuce is all in there. It is let us is all in Hebrews. It's the Sally (laughs) epistle. (laughs) Let us fear, lest a promise be left us of entering into his rest. Now notice we have another rest under consideration. Land of Canaan was a rest from a natural physical point of view for Israel, but there's another rest. Let us therefore fear lest a promise being left to us. Here's a promise that God has given unto us. Therefore let us fear lest a promise being left to us of entering into his rest, we should come up short of it. How can we come up short of it? By following the example of those 10 spies who caused the hearts of the Israelites to melt and they rebelled against God and did not enter into his rest. Now, what did God? how did God respond to that? the Lord addressed them through Moses and told them, those 10 spies, there were 12 spies now, and 10 of those 10, 12 spies are going to perish by a plague. And then everybody from the age of 20 and older are going to perish in the wilderness. Here's some of the things they said. Why don't you bring us out into the wilderness for us to perish out here? When we were down in Egypt, unless we could, at least we sat by the flesh pots. And we had bread and cucumbers and onions and and those kind of things to eat. Were there no grays in Egypt that you brought us out here into the wilderness to die? And our little ones shall perish here in the wilderness. This is some of their comments that they were making. And the Lord said unto them, Everybody from age 20 and above will perish in the wilderness. And your little ones that you said should perish... They will enter in to the land of Canaan. You spout out the land for 40 days, I'm going to give you 40 years. In the book of Job, we read where if we sow to the wind, we reap the whirlwind. You know, you always reap more than you sow, in a sense. You know what I mean? You put a, a, uh, you know, a, a, some corn in the ground. One kernel of corn goes in the ground, and it, and then it comes up with a stalk, and oftentimes it has two ears, and on each ear is a lot of corn. Right, so you get a lot more come out of the ground than what you put into the ground. It works both ways. If we sow to the wind, we shall reap of the whirlwind. He says, "You will perish in the wilderness. Your carcasses shall fall in the wilderness over a period of years of forty years." Now, here's what the Lord said unto them in the 19th chapter of Exodus. In verse four. He says, "You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians. Just to make it clear what happened to the Egyptians, God did it. You seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bare you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself." When you go back to Exodus chapter 14, you'll find where the Lord tells Israel to stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Tells Moses, stretch forth his rod, and he did, and God sent a strong east wind that night, and it blew upon the sea, and it departed two great walls of water, and the Lord said, stand still, see the salvation of the Lord. He says, for this day you shall see the Egyptians no more forever. Israel crossed, dry shot to the other side. We then find The Egyptians, as we read in Hebrews 11, assayed. That is, they thought they could do the same thing. And they start to cross and God brings the two great walls of water back upon them and they all perish. And chapter 14 ends by the Bible saying that Israel looked upon the Egyptians all dead on the seashore. Every single one of them. They would never see them again, just like the Lord said. The Lord said that to them. He says now in Acts chapter 19, You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians. They had a mighty army. They had the most most powerful army on the earth at that time, but obviously no match for God. You see what I did unto the Egyptians and how I bare you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, here's the picture. All through the Bible God uses the eagle to display things about his mercy and his grace and his power. Remember when he dealt with Jacob? You go to Deuteronomy chapter 32 and you'll see where he dealt with Jacob when he was in uh, that wasteland, that land, that desert land, that wastes howling wilderness. And in chapter 32, you'll find where it says that uh, Jacob was the apple of God's eye. And he says, as the eagle uh, stirreth up her nest, and fluttereth over her young, and beareth them on her wings, so I alone did lead thee. Here's the same kind of a similar picture. How uh, the Lord dealt with Jacob and uses the eagle here as an image and as a picture to display his, his compassion, his love, his care of Jacob. Go to Isaiah chapter 40. It starts off like this Comfort ye, comfort you, my people, thus saith the Lord. Declaring Jerusalem that a warfare is accomplished. I love the way it starts, but I also love the way it ends. He says, they that put their trust in the Lord, they shall walk and they shall not faint. They shall run, they shall not be weary. He says, they shall mount up as wings of eagles. As wings of eagles. One of the four beasts that the Apostle John saw in Revelation chapter 4 had the face what? Of an eagle. Face of a lion, face of a man, face of a calf slash ox, and the face of an eagle. Of all the fowls of the air, the eagle is represent, is represented as you might say, the most majestic, the most powerful, the greatest of all. That's one of the reasons I'm sure the United States chose an eagle, you know, uh, as our representative in that regard. Then you go to Revelation chapter 12. In Revelation chapter 12 you're going to find where a woman brings forth a man child. See, there was a woman, who, she was clothed in the sun, the moon was under her feet, and the crown of twelve stars was upon her head. And she brought forth a man child. That man shall I do believe to be the son of God. He was brought forth by the Jewish people of the nation of Israel. And, but there was another great wonder. That was a wonder. There was another great wonder which was a dragon, a great dragon. And that dragon made war with the woman and her seed. As we go toward the end of that chapter, chapter 12, you'll find where it says, And the Lord gave the woman the wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness for a time and times and a half. And there she was able to find a refuge in a sanctuary. And then eventually the earth opened up, uh, uh, you know, and helped the woman who had the testimony, her, her seed who had the testimony of Christ. And God defended her, but in his providence, you see the use of an eagle again. So you see what I did unto the Egyptians, how I bare them up on eagle's wings, you up on eagle's wings, and brought you unto myself. What a a beautiful picture we have of God's love and concern for these people. He said, now, if you will hearken unto my voice and keep my commandments, he said, I will bless you, and ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all the nations of the earth, for the earth is mine. The Lord says, the earth is mine, and you will be a peculiar treasure among all the nations of this earth right here unto me, and I will make you a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You see, that's dependent upon their obedience. That's what the Lord said to them. Now, he also is going to tell them back in Deuteronomy chapter 1 that they provoked him and tempted him 10 times. Now, now I go back and try to find 10 times where they're tempted. Now, I come up a little short, but the Lord said, you're tempted me 10 times. So I'm going to take it. He was tempted 10 times. He was provoked and tempted 10 times. And he says unto them, again, all those above the age of 20, they they shall perish in the wilderness. He says, because they heard and seen what I did to the Egyptians, my works, my power, my miracles in Egypt and in the wilderness. So let's just recap that just for a moment. What happened down there in Egypt? God would send 10 plagues. He'll turn water into blood. He will bring frogs upon the land. He will bring lights upon the land. He will bring flies upon the land. He will bring disease upon the land. He will bring darkness upon the land, so dark that you can feel it. That's darker than any darkness I've ever been in. Right? And that would be the death of the firstborn. But you notice there was a spot of land in Egypt called Goshen. Goshen is where the Israelites dwelt. When Jacob brought his family down into Egypt, you know when he come to see Joseph? Pharaoh gave the land of Goshen for Jacob and his family. That was a, some of the best land in Egypt was the land of Goshen. The flies never entered into Goshen. The frogs never entered into Goshen. The disease never entered into Goshen. Darkness never entered into Goshen. And yet it was so dark the Egyptians could feed it the Israelites had lamp light in their camps. When it came to the death of the firstborn, no death came to the firstborn in Goshen. Now, Goshen wasn't around the other side of the world from Egypt. It's in Egypt. Okay? So God just pinpointed it, targeted where all these things would take place. And the Israelites saw every bit of this. Those ten spies saw every bit of this. Everybody by the age of 20 witnessed and saw every bit of that. They also all witnessed, the entire nation witnessed this when God brought them out of the land of Egypt and they crossed the Red Sea. By by estimates, historians' estimates, there was at least a million Israelites that was in the land of Egypt. And they all crossed the Red Sea, dry shod to the other side. He delivered an entire nation of people, a million people, and not one of those was left behind. You go read Psalms 78 about this, you'll find the Bible says, and there was not a feeble person among them. Not a feeble person among them in a million people? Usually you think about the aged as being feeble, right? And maybe those who have afflictions of one kind or another being feeble, and maybe small children or something. There was not one feeble person among them when you brought them across the Red Sea. Not one was left behind. Every single Israelite is out of there. Now, I want you to see a picture here too because Israel, well, as a nation, is a, is a, are a people that are gods by national election. National election. If you go to Isaiah 43 and start reading in the first verse, we find the Lord speaking to them like this. He said, O Jacob, I have formed thee, and O Israel, I have created thee. He says, I have redeemed thee, I have called thee by name, thou art mine. Now notice, how did Israel get formed? How did Israel get created? Did they form themselves? They create themselves. You know, Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus under good works, before which he has ordained, we should walk in them. We believe in the biblical account of creation, both naturally and spiritually, both. We believe, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, the creator who created all things that exist. But the same thing applies to God's children. God is the creator. We are the created. If any man be in Christ, what is he? He's a new creature. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus Something that's created has nothing to do with the fact that they're created. You've got one active, one passive, and we are created in Christ Jesus. Okay, then he says, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And this is interesting to me. In the first seven verses of Isaiah chapter 43, the word I is used 19 times, no, excuse me, 13 times. And the word I has reference to God. 13 times God says something about this people Israel. I formed thee, I created thee, I redeemed thee, I named thee, I brought you unto myself. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. In fact, that's mentioned twice, that being with them. They shall not overflow thee. When you go through the fire, it shall not kindle against thee. He says, I'll say uh, to you from the east, uh, to my children, to the east, uh, uh, come to me from the east and the west, uh, keep not back. In the north and the south, I'll call from all directions. 13 times the I as it refers to God, what God does for his people. Alright, you come over to the 45th chapter of Isaiah, verse 4. And he says, O Jacob, and O Israel, mine elect. Israel was the elect of God from a standpoint of national election. The Lord's people are the elect of God. That expression is used frequently in the scripture. Yet you can talk to a lot of people who are churchgoers and supposedly Bible readers and they don't even know it's in there. It's in there 27 times. <laughs> the word elect, elects, elected, elections, in there 27 times. Romans 8, who shall lay anything to the charge of what? God's elect. Colossians 3, 12, put on therefore as the elect of God. Who's he talking about? Who's he talking to? He's talking to God's children. He's talking about God's people who God chose in Christ before time ever began, before the foundation of the world it's not based upon anything other than his sovereign grace and power. Isn't that wonderful? People say, well, every human being's got a free will. In the natural realm, I'll go along with you you got a right to wear whatever color dress you want to wear. you got a right to wear whatever color tie you want to wear. you got a right to choose the color of the car you drive. You make all those choices today. Whenever I'm finished and you leave here, you'll have some choice to make about what you're going to have for lunch. you got a right to pull for the Kansas City Chiefs or the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. It just better to be Tampa Bay. I just took that choice away. <laughs> And I know that the long snapper for the Kansas City Chiefs is a Primitive Baptist. I know that. But I'm a Tampa Bay man. All right. So you can make all kind of choices free, but not in the spiritual realm because you're dead and trespassed in sin. You have no spiritual desire whatsoever. Read John chapter 5, John chapter 8, in the latter part. And you'll find expressions like, yes, that the Lord speaks to the Jews. He says, you will not come to me. He that uh, is of God, heareth God's words. You hear them not, because you're not of God. Need to study the doctrine of not, N-O-T in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 2.14, for the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for the foolishness unto him, neither he know them, because their spirits are discerned. Titus 1 and 1, according to the faith of God's elect. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.4 For our gospel came not to you in word only, but it came in power and the Holy Ghost in much assurance, knowing therefore, brother, your election of God. It's all over the place. And the doctrine of election is taught by also from the standpoint of God choosing. For example, John 6.37 All the Father giveth me, that's election, shall come unto me. And he had come to me out of no wise cast out, for I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me, and this is the Father's will, all he hath given me. I shall lose nothing and raise it up again to the last day. Not all who accept me, not all who receive me, not all who choose me, but all whom thou hast given me. John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy son. He might also glorify thee as thou hast given him power over all flesh, and he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. What do you think those expressions mean? It means that God chose you in Christ. You didn't choose him. You never would choose him. Your nature is dead in trespassing and sins. You could not choose him. Now, we certainly have the responsibility as his children to choose to obey him. But now we're talking of fellowship and discipleship. We're not talking about relationships. There's a very vast deal of difference in relationship and fellowship and discipleship. Correct? All right, so God brings them out of there. All right, they see all that. Uh, I, I, they've seen things that I've never seen. Right? All the things I've been talking about. Now, as they go, in chapter 15 is the song where a, a, a song is written uh praise and honor of the Lord. Glory, says the Lord, uh, for his right hand his strong arm hath delivered us and the Egyptians and Pharaoh and his chariots have all gone down to the depths of the sea as a great stone. What happens when you drop a rock in water? It goes right to the bottom, doesn't it? And that's the way the chariots and horses of Pharaoh's army, just like rocks, went right straight, straight down to the bottom of the water. But They go out to the wilderness now, after seeing all that, and they get thirsty. And the Bible says they came to Moses and says, we're thirsty, Moses. We need something to drink. They didn't say that. The Bible says they came and murmured. Why did they just come and say, Moses, we're thirsty. What's what's the plan? No, they murmured against Moses. And then they found some water, at a place called Marah, but when they tried to drink it, it was bitter. So they complained. <laughs> so God told Moses to cut down a tree over here, and he cut the tree down, went in the water, and the bitter water became sweet water. That's in chapter 15. Now At the end of the chapter, you're going to find where God guided them went before them and guided them to a place called Elam. In a place called Elam, there were 12 palm tre- excuse me, uh, 12 wells of water and 70 palm trees. 12 wells of water, 12 tribes of Israel. Every tribe had its own well of water. <laughs> right out there in the wilderness. That's what I call an oasis. God just put an oasis right out there. But chapter 16 comes up and they hungered and the Bible says, they murmured against Moses. They murm- and murmuring against Moses means they was murmuring against God, you see. So the Lord in his mercy is going to take care of them. He says, I'm going to rain down quail from heaven that you'll gather in the evening, and I'm going to give you something called manna that you'll gather in the morning. And so manna came down for them every morning, and gave them instructions how each morning they were to gather manna, the uh, uh, first five days, I'll say. Day number six, they were to gather twice as much, gather nothing on the seventh day. Well, those who didn't gather twice as much on the sixth day didn't have nothing to eat on day seven, and those who gather out gather, on, uh, uh, gather more than they're supposed to in the other days, then the excess just spoiled. You, you, God, you can't get around God. <laughs> I mean, you can't you, you can't uh, outmaneuver God. You know, just do what he says. Don't try to outmaneuver him. <laughs> he ain't not going to work. And we could go into a lot of detail about that manna. You know, it was small, it was round, it was white, all pointing to Christ. It it was circular, no apparent beginning or end, showing the eternality of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was white, depicting His righteousness, sinless nature. It had a sweet taste to it. You know, Uh, And and is not Christ sweet to the taste of the child of God in a spiritual sense? When you hear the truth of the gospel of God's grace, isn't it a wonderful sweet taste? You know, uh, most people have a sweet tooth. Well, I tell you what, I got a whole set of them. (laughs) Especially when it comes to the gospel. (laughs) I got too many of them. I'll say that. That's a fact. Uh, Not for the gospel, but I mean out here in the other. I don't have to have a whole lot. I just have, have some. But anyway. Um, and it came down from heaven just like Christ. He came down from heaven. And the, Lord, the earth would have dew on it and the, and the manna would come down and settle on the dew. In other words, God put a, a buffer between the manna and this corrupt earth right here. And the next morning they went out and got the manna. In the evening they went out and got the Quail. God provided for them, right? Chapter 17, they get thirsty again. This time they didn't murmur, they chided. They chided against Moses. Became very angry with him. And the Lord said, tell you what, Moses, there's there's a rock right over here, and I'll stand before thee, and you come to that rock, and you smite the rock, and water will come out of the rock and satisfy their thirst. Now the Lord said, they saw all of that. They saw every bit of that. And yet they rebelled and would not go into Canaan's land because they saw giants, they saw walled cities. He says, we're as grasshoppers in their sight as far as size is concerned. And it caused the hearts of the people to melt and God was displeased and put them through a 40-year march through the wilderness. Just like the Lord said, after 40 years, everybody by the age of 20 passed on if you'd have taken a picture of the nation of Israel before they started the 40 years, if you could have done that, and then took a picture of them at the end of the 40 years and compared the pictures, they'd have looked different, wouldn't they? Because everybody over here, above the age of 20, is not over here. And all the little ones over here are now grown up over here. Now, if you could look at a picture of Bethel Church 40 years ago, 20 years ago, and take a picture of Bethel Church today, not going to look the same. Because people in that picture 14 and 20 years ago, a lot of them have passed on. But we got new faces over here. See, things change as time goes on, right? So, that is, that is omitted and left out here in Hebrews 11, because obviously I've not described any great acts of faith, have I? But rather rebellion... Evil heart, evil report, melting hearts, etc. But the 40 years are over now. And now Joshua, Moses has died. God's buried him, and Joshua becomes a new leader. And they're going to cross Jordan. And now the walls of Jericho shall fall flat after being compassed seven days. Now you go back and you read chapter 6 in the book of Joshua for this. And what a wonderful story it is. I, it just, I always enjoy reading it and trying to speak on it from time to time, but that's not my purpose to go into detail about that today. Other than this, God gave him instructions. He said, you're going to surround this city one time a day for six days. On day number seven, you'll go around seven times. You'll line up a particular order. you have the, the men of war. Then you'll have seven priests by, uh, blowing seven trumpets uh, behind them. Seven priests, seven trumpets of ram's horns. Then you have the ark of the covenant. Then you have the remainder of people following them. That's the order everything's to go in. And you're not to say anything. You're not to say a word as you go around that city each day. Now notice what it says in Hebrews 11. The walls of Jericho fell flat after they were compassed about seven days. Not before, after seven days. So that's when the plan will be over. That's when the plan shall be completed and they will be in obedience to what God said. I'd say that took faith to do that. This is how we're going to start out the conquest of Canaan, you might, uh, somebody might say. This is how we're going to start out conquering this, this land. Uh, we're going to just march around with trumpets and we're not going to say anything. And on day number seven, we'll go around the seventh time. And when we do, we're going to shout. And the Lord said, the walls will fall flat. I don't think there was a slightest tremor until they went around seven times. I don't think there was a crack. I don't think there was a tremor. I don't think you saw anything shaking or anything. I think everything appeared to be exactly the same after the 13th time around that that city or the 12th time. But the last time, on the 7th time, on the 7th day, when they shouted, the walls fell flat. Now, the next verse there in Hebrews says, By faith Rahab, the harlot Rahab, perished not with them that believed not, Because she received the spies in peace. How does all that play into this? We go back to Joshua chapter 2. And this is before. I want you to notice this. This is before God gives Joshua the plan. This is before God tells Joshua, I have given thee the city. Joshua will send two spies into the land of Canaan to spy out the city of Jericho only. That's the first city on the list. City of Jericho. A great fortified city. A strong city. Uh, heathens in that city. A wicked, indolatious people are in that city. But there's a little lady in that city by the name of Rahab. And somehow or another, in God's providence, those two spies enter in. Now, those twelve spies that went in to begin with, to search out the land, it's made manifest later on that they had a heart of uh, evil heart of unbelief. There's nothing wrong in sending these two spies. And here's an example right here, how you walk by faith and at the same time God expecting you to take all precaution, God expecting you to carry out his orders and, you know, and do all you know that you're supposed to do and at the same time trust him. There was a leader in England back in the, uh, many, many years ago the name of Cromwell. Here's what he told his soldiers. He says, trust in the Lord and keep your powder dry. (laughs) Nothing wrong with that statement. Trust in the Lord and keep your powder dry. I trust in the Lord, but I lock my doors. I trust in the Lord, I lock my windows. I trust in the Lord, and, and I set the alarm at night. I do all I know I can do, and I put my trust in the Lord, and then I just go to sleep. Right? Have I got a 100% guarantee that somebody will not break into my house and do harm to me and Karen? I don't have a 100% guarantee. But I'm going to do all I know to do, all I know I can do, and then I'm going to put my trust in the Lord, and I'm going forward, Lord willing. Rahab. She received the spies in peace. By fate, she did this. There's one person in the city of Jericho. Her name is Rahab, and God knows all about Rahab. And Rahab's called Rahab the harlot. Every time you read her, she's Rahab the harlot. But I'm telling you, this was a past life she lived. This is a past life she lived. She lived a life of immorality. She lived a life of idolatry until a certain time. But then God's grace quickened her and made her alive and put faith within her heart. So what are some of the evidences of that? Well, first of all, she received the spies with peace. She could have reported the spies, right? She could have reported the spies. She could have sounded the alarm and said, spies have come into our city here, and there's two of them, here they are. She didn't do that. She received the spies, and she received them with peace, which means she didn't receive them because she was afraid they would harm her or hurt her. She received them with peace. She had a willing spirit and a willing attitude to receive them. That's an evidence of grace. She did that by faith. And then the news did get out. And the king sent word in there that she was to show and reveal who, where they were at. And here's what she said. She said, well, yeah, they came in, but before night, they slipped back out. And if you hurry up and get out of here, you can go catch them. <laughs> and so they tried to do that and what did she do next? She took them on top of her roof where there was flax stalks of flax where she had uh, ordered and laid out there in order which tells me what? The gathering of flax was a, a work. It was a diligent work. It was not something easy so this tells me she's turned her life around she has experienced repentance she's experienced repentance now how did that happen? In the city of Jericho, there were no Sabbaths to observe. In the city of Jericho, there were no scriptures to read. In the city of Jer- Jericho, there were no prophets to proclaim. If it, depended, if it depends upon getting tracks out, depends upon getting the word out, the gospel out, which I believe, and doing the best we can to spread the good news and glad tidings, but if it depended upon all that to get out to save somebody, and then you tell me how Rahab got saved. Rahab got saved just like everybody else has ever been saved. She got saved by the grace of God totally and only and completely. She hid them up there. She had enough of that over there to hide them. If you go to Proverbs chapter 31 and read about the virtuous woman, you'll see part of her description as being a virtuous woman is that she sought out flax in those things and worked willingly with her hands. Those stalks of flax later on after they dried out, they used for spinning and for weaving and making clothes and things of that nature. That's the kind of life she's living now. But she did get that label. And I tried to tell people, you know, all the time, especially young folks, you know, you're going to get a label. If you, and once you get the label, it sticks with you. You know, that's the boy that always talks all the time in class. You can't shut him up. That, that did happen to one of our children. I'm not going to tell you which one. You can figure it out. <laughs> all right. <clears throat> Somebody says, you know, I can't thank that brother's name, but, you know, they're always the first ones to church. Well, that's a good label. Somebody said, well, you know, I can't thank them, and you know, they're the ones who get here right at 11. You know, that, that label. Now They're the ones who are always smiling, always happy. And then there's the ones who never smile. You know, they never smile, got a frown on their face. You know, act like they got a bird in their saddle all the time. People got all kind of unique ways of describing you. And I do not want to hear what yours is of me, okay? <laughs> we can do without that. <laughs> Rahab the harlot was a harlot. Not anymore. Not anymore. It's interesting to me how, the, how we have so many examples in the Bible of people that would be oppressed and rejected of religious people but showed more love for the Lord than other people you take the woman over here in John chapter 4 at Jacob's well the Lord interaction between her and the Lord you know she was married five times and man she was living with was not her husband that's what the Lord told her but boy the Lord turned her life around I tell you that before it was all over with. She says, I know the Messiah shall come. And then when the Lord revealed him as being the Messiah, she ran back says, come see a man which told me all things that I ever did. Her testimony was wonderful. Then you got the woman in Luke chapter 7 that comes to the Lord. And she begins to weep so much, she begins to wash his feet and dries with the hair of her head and she kisses his feet and anointed his feet. And that Pharisee in the house thought within himself that if this man was who he said he was, he knew know who this woman is, and she's a sinner. He wouldn't allow her to do all those things to him. Yes, she was a sinner, but I'm going to tell you this, she was a repentant sinner. Rahab was a heart. She was a repentant woman. Repentance is important. Romans 2.4 Knowest thou not that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? How does anybody repent? It's through the goodness of the Lord, that's how. If the Lord didn't lead you to repentance, you'd never repent. Never repent. Now, I want to ask you a question this morning. You've got the sinner woman over here, and the Lord said to that Pharisee, first of all, he says, i got a question for you. He says, uh, Here's a man who had owed 500 pence, a man who owed 50 pence, neither man could pay but both were forgiven. Who would love him the most? And he said, well, I suppose, he, didn't, he sounded kind of noncommittal, didn't he? I suppose the one who owed the most, he says, you've answered right. And then he got the man and the woman side by side right in front of them. He says, Simon, he says, since I've been here, you gave me no water To wash my feet, she washed them with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no oil to anoint them, she anointed my feet with oil, you gave me no kiss, she kissed my feet. And then he turns to the woman. He says, Thy sins, which are many, are forgiven. Are forgiven. Thank God we got a merciful God. Let's take this woman, let's take the woman, well of Samaria, let's take Rahab the harlot. Now let's take Mary, the mother of Jesus. What have they all got in common? All right, you probably think, well, I don't know what in the world Mary, the mother of Jesus, got in common with Rahab, the harlot, and the sinner woman of Luke 7, and the Samaritan woman over here in John 4. They all had a human nature. All four of them. All four of them are sinners. Mary said this in Luke chapter 1, My soul doth magnify the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. You don't need a Savior if you're not a sinner. If you're a sinner, you need a Savior, you see. Yes, Mary had lived a different life. Mary denied ungodliness and worldly lust, like Titus 2.11 says unto all of us, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation appeared unto all men, Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, and that's what Mary had been doing. But I tell you what—I know there were times when Mary needed to repent. I know it was because I know she's human, <laughs> and there's never been a human that walked the face of this earth, the most godly person you've ever known in your life, and of course you might all know automatically goes to your grandmother. <laughs> well, it's true or not the most godly person you've ever known, man or woman, had reason to repent all along the journey of life. I know I do. It's not a day that goes by that I don't need to ask the Lord to forgive me for something. And I need to change some things in my life and start fresh the next day. Okay? Now, Rahal the harlot perish not contrast her faith with the lack of faith in those ten spies who had witnessed, heard and witnessed far more than she ever did. it with everybody else in Jericho, because here's what she's going to tell those ten spies, excuse me, those two spies. After they've gone and she's had them hid, she speaks to them, she says, I know that the Lord has given you the land and Your your fear has come upon all the inhabitants of the land and we heard how God opened up the Red Sea for you and we heard what he did to the Egyptians. We heard, she says, what you did to those two kings in the wilderness and it caused the hearts of the people of Jericho to melt. Did you notice she's the only one that responded this way? Not another single person in Jericho did. Only her. Okay? And then she says, I beseech thee, as I've shown kindness to you, show kindness to me. She says, when you come and take the land, she says, deliver me and my family, my mother, my father, my brethren, our household. And give me a token of this. And the spy says, our life for yours. And then here's something really interesting. The Bible tells me where she lived. She lived in a house on the wall. Her house was on the wall of Jericho and she dwelt in the house. And this is all before the Lord ever gives the instructions of Joshua how to take that city and the walls falling flat what's going to happen? The walls fall flat. Her house is on the wall. To begin with, her house is in a very strategic position because she's going to let those spies uh, help them escape by letting them out a window of her house on the wall by a rope or a cord. She couldn't have done that had her house not been on the wall, right? And then they tell her, they said, you take a scarlet line and you hang it out the window. And when we come and take the city, when we come and take the land, we'll see the scarlet line. And you'll be spared. So she put a scarlet line out the window. That scarlet line was for identification. It separated her from everybody else in Jericho. Right? So they come and they carry out the plan they march around the city on that seven days seven times. They shout and the wall falls flat universally with the exception of one place. The wall where her house was at. And her and all her house. See, in order to have this sanctuary they all had to be in the house like Paul in Acts chapter 27. He told the centurion, except these soldiers who are trying to desert here, except those soldiers abide in the ship, they cannot be saved or delivered. Noah and his family is on the ark. All that were delivered from that, from that judgment of God in the flood were those in the ark. And the ones who delivered from destruction, the city of Jericho, are in this house that belongs to Rahab. All her family are in that house. She put out the scarlet line Scarlet, the color scarlet. Reminds you of blood, doesn't it? You know, we all, we all identify with the Lord Jesus Christ through the blood, aren't we? <laughs> through the blood. Oh gosh, I wish I had another 15, 20 minutes, uh, but I don't, okay? <laughs> Come back next Sunday and give it to me then, all right? But anyway, by faith, the harlot Rahab. Now, let me just tell you, in the next 60 seconds, a few other things about Rahab. You go to Joshua chapter 6, and you'll find when she's delivered after Jericho is taken, she's taken into the nation of Israel. She's a Canaanite. She's a Gentile. She has no right to the Abrahamic covenant whatsoever, but now she's brought in to the nation of Israel, and now she shall dwell. All right? She marries a man by the name of Salmon. Salmon and her have a child named Boaz. Boaz marries Ruth. They have a child named Oban. They have a child named Jesse. They have a child named David. She's the great-grandmother of David. Amazing, isn't it? Go to Matthew 1.5 for that information I just gave you. And you'll find she's in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ, along with three other women. Her, Bathsheba, Tamar, and Ruth. And you might think of these four women, I can see Ruth been in there, but I cannot see Tamar. Go read around her history. I cannot, uh, you know, you know what happened with David and Bathsheba? And you got Rahab. All four of these women, which are very unusual for a woman to be in a Jewish genealogy. Four of them. In the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ, Rahab was one of them. The great-grandmother of David, a man after God's own heart.